It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, May 1st. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. May has arrived, which means we're that much closer to fire season. Last week, residents of the North Bloomfield Road area met to learn about prescribed fire. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza has that story up ahead. But before we hear from Claudio, we'll have your local news and weather forecast. The California report tries to answer the question of why it took San Bernardino City officials nine months to release the names of police officers who shot and killed a 23-year-old black man. And National Native News looks at the effort to capture and preserve oral histories from Indian boarding school survivors. This is the California Report. I'm Maddie Bolaños in San Francisco. Many are calling it environmental justice. California's Air Board has passed an ambitious plan to phase out diesel truck fleets from garbage trucks to Amazon delivery vehicles. KQED's senior climate editor Kevin Stark reports. The plan is the Air Board's latest regulation geared at cleaning up toxic air quality and fighting climate change. It comes a day after the same body passed first in the nation regulations on diesel trains. The rule bans the sale of new diesel trucks by 2036 and requires a switch to zero emission trucks by 2042. Eric Guerra, a Sacramento City Councilor, represents the region on the panel. It is the critical health impacts, the critical health impacts that are affecting everyone. Industry groups and other government agencies oppose the policies, arguing they are too onerous and will drive up costs for Californians. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. Last July, San Bernardino police shot and killed a 23-year-old black man as he ran from them while allegedly holding a gun. The police killing of Rob Adams drew protests and demands for accountability and is the subject of a $100 million lawsuit filed on behalf of his family. Now, nine months after Adams was killed, San Bernardino city officials confirmed the names of the involved officers to KVCR and the California newsroom. My colleague Molly Solomon helped lead the investigation, and she joins me now. Molly, tell us what you and your colleagues discovered. So for months after the shooting, the city of San Bernardino was essentially silent on the names of the officers that shot Rob Adams. Um, We filed public records requests for more information, and most of those were denied. But using what the police department did send us, which included heavily redacted body camera footage, we were able to identify those officers as Michael Yoon and Sergeant Imran Ahmed. And once we had the names, we started looking at court records and use of force cases from the police department and found that both officers had histories of alleged excessive force, previous shootings, and civil rights lawsuits. Those lawsuits have cost the city more than a million dollars in settlements. Uh, We reached out to lawyers for both officers, as well as the city and the police union. Nobody got back to us with comment for this story. And we're now nine months from the shooting. Why did it take so long to publicly confirm these officers' names? That is an excellent question. And according to policing experts that we spoke with, that length of time really stands out. In general, releasing officer names after a serious incident like this one is pretty standard within a few days, sometimes as long as a few weeks. And California has made that expectation even more clear. The state Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the public's right to know. And the state legislature has taken a stand on this, too, with recent police transparency laws. 
And I should add, it wasn't just us asking for the officer names. Rob Adams's family and their attorneys had also been pushing. But in spite of that, San Bernardino refused to confirm names to us until about a week ago. Um, they claimed they sent an email with the names the Friday before Christmas at 8.50 p.m., but they refused to tell us who that email was sent to, and it was never posted online and never reported on. Uh, we spoke with Peter Biebring at the ACLU in Southern California, and he says that's a far cry from public transparency. Sending an email the Friday before Christmas to a small list of people in the dark of night is not public disclosure. And why is it important for the public to know the names of the officers involved in police shootings in general? Knowing the names of officers involved in cases like Rob Adams is essential for a couple reasons. Accountability is a big one. Accountability to ensure that the department is training its officers correctly. And it helps us see how they deal with officers who use deadly force. And we can't really do that effectively if we don't know who did it. They also allow us to see patterns and look at histories. As I mentioned, both officers involved have histories of alleged excessive force, which we detailed in our reporting. It also helps local officials know what's actually happening in their city's police department. Uh, when we reached out to San Bernardino City Council member Ben Reynoso for the story, he told us, quote, when an officer's on the street, armed, in a patrol car, I want to know if they have a record. And I think it's also meaningful to the family to have these names out there in the public record. When I spoke to Renisha Adams, she's the younger sister of Rob Adams, she said that learning the officers who killed her brother had hurt other people in the past was really upsetting and really cemented her own distrust in the police department's ability to police themselves. I'm just like really disappointed. They should be like held accountable to not just what happened to my brother, but for everything that they've just done to people. That's Molly Solomon from KQED and the California Newsroom. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. A recent state audit found the California Department of Public Health has missed opportunities to collect data about people's sexual orientation and gender identity. CAP Radio's healthcare reporter Kate Wolf explains. The audit showed only 13 percent of public health forums that ask about demographics include questions about sexual orientation and gender identity. Dr. Carl Street is a national expert on this type of data collection. He says a more complete picture can give us information about risk factors for substance abuse and mental health issues, as well as long-term health outcomes. Right now, he says, we don't know what we don't know. They're essentially making entire swaths of the population invisible and essentially withholding resources to help address any inequities they may be experiencing. In a statement to CAP Radio, the state public health department acknowledged it has work to do to address the data deficit. For The California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. Yosemite National Park will be fully reopening this morning, just days after closing over flooding concerns. Due to the massive snowpack, there were concerns about flooding from the Merced River, but it didn't rise as much as forecast. Park officials do warn that waterways are running higher than normal and are still considered extremely dangerous. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners with more than 25 flavors including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health, on the web at 11thHourRacing.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, May 1st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great week. As part of an ongoing effort to help expose the formerly obscured history of Indian boarding schools, a new partnership aims to collect and preserve stories from those who survived their time at the schools. As more and more details emerge about the abusive system, the program hopes to prevent that information from ever being lost again. That's ahead in National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Millions of dollars have been committed to documenting the stories of Native boarding school survivors. Their voices have long been a priority for Interior Secretary Deb Holland. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene has more. The U.S. Interior Department has announced a partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities to make sure the oral history from boarding school survivors isn't forgotten. The partnership includes a $4 million fund to pay for research and educational programming, sharing the stories of boarding school abuse victims. Holland visited the Rosebud Reservation in October to talk with survivors. Arluene Kingman is the executive director of the Great Plains Tribal Chairmen's Association. While she says she appreciates Holland's actions, listening to survivors is long overdue. She's made a point of taking time to go and hold community uh, forums to listen. I happened to go to the one at Rosebud, and I tell you, I was crying with some of these people who told the stories. Kingman says these forums are alleviating some of the trauma. This one woman, she had been in the boarding school, and, and she told how even today she still got trauma from that. She said it was sort of a healing for her to to voice this and be able to see there's some healing taking place now. She says she hopes this money is used to continue healing in that vein, to reclaim what was taken. When they were raised in the boarding school, it took their culture, their values from them. Holland says the goal of the project is to rebuild bonds between Native communities and the federal government. I'm C.J. Keene. The Navajo Nation continues to have a hard time accessing clean drinking water. As KUNC's Emma Van De Nindy reports, that's impacting children's health. (laughs) This is Dorian. He's playing in the mud outside his family's Hogan, a one-room home on the Navajo Nation. He loves playing with cars. His favorite is the Cars movie character, Lightning McQueen. What does he say? He's go, <laughs> Rontel Hale, his mother, says he's growing well for a three-year-old. Because when I would go to his appointments, they would always tell me, like, um, he's going to grow over 6'2". But health professionals say not every kid on the Navajo Nation, an area as big as West Virginia, is growing healthy and strong like Dorian. Thousands of families lack access to clean drinking water due to a legacy of neglect by the U.S. government. They either have to haul water from community wells or drive for hours to the nearest store. If water is so hard to access, then what is a replacement? You know, for a lot of communities, sometimes it was those sugary beverages. That's Renee Goldtooth-Hallwood. She works for the Nota Begay III Foundation, a native children's health group. She says sugary drinks like Gatorade or even Arizona tea 
are cheaper and more accessible for Native communities. This has staggering effects for children. The Foundation reports that more than 85% of Navajo kids have at least one sugary drink a day. And these numbers apply to many other pueblos and reservations. And we also had another statistic that said that this is the first time that children will not outlive their parents. That's scary. Hale knew these beverages can contribute to obesity and diabetes, conditions that are disproportionately high among indigenous youth. Her desire to keep Dorian healthy only grew after he was born. Your mentality is like, more like, oh, is he okay? Is he, am I doing stuff right? It's more different when you have like your own baby. I'm Emma Vandenindy. This story is supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Strongheart's Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Today marks the start of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Week. The week seeks to bring attention to the disproportionate violence faced by Indigenous communities, particularly American Indian and Alaska Native women. According to California State Assemblymember James C. Ramos, these two groups experience murder rates 10 times higher than the national average. And cases of murdered and missing Indigenous women are seven times less likely to be solved than any other demographic. California has the largest population of Native Americans in the U.S., and for the first time in state history, starting today, the historic dome on the Capitol building will be bathed in red light to commemorate the state's missing and murdered indigenous people. Sacramento's Capitol Dome will remain red through May 5th. In addition to the lighting, the Capitol plays host to a number of events, including a May 2nd Assembly Select Committee on Native American Affairs, a May 3rd historic candlelight vigil from 6 to 8 p.m. on the Capitol West Steps, and a May 4th special assembly floor session opening, which designates the month of May as Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Awareness Month in California. It's the 1st of May, which means the time has come for burn permits. CAL FIRE has announced that beginning this morning, all residential pile burning will require a permit in Nevada, Yuba, Placer, and Sierra counties. Burn permits must be obtained online at burnpermit.fire.ca.gov. There's no fee for a fire permit, but an annual renewal is required. So despite securing a permit in 2022, you'll need to apply once again this year. CAL FIRE reminds residents that an individual must have either a printed or digital permit in their possession while burning. Once you're in possession of a burn permit, you must still comply with air quality regulations, which means checking the burn day status before commencing burning. 
A few important guidelines to remember, always have a minimum 10-foot clearance around all burn piles. Have a shovel and water source at the ready, and never leave a burn pile unattended. More information and fire safety tips can be found online at readyforwildfire.org or by visiting your local CAL FIRE station. And finally, for those grieving the Sacramento Kings Game 7 loss, that feeling, says Midtown-based therapist Linda Roloffs, is perfectly natural. The NBA team had a spectacular ascent to the Western Conference Finals, which came to a crashing halt Sunday in a loss to the Golden State Warriors. And with the final buzzer, the capital city, along with fans across the region, have fallen into collective mourning. Quote, Grief is a response to the loss of something important. When I work with clients who are grieving, what I always talk about is grief is a natural process, Roloffs tells the Sacramento Bee. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. It's a gloomy and cold first day of May. Cool and unsettled weather is expected through much of the week with chances of showers and thunderstorms. Higher elevations will see some late-season snow that sticks. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 40 degrees, a 50% chance of showers. Tuesday mostly cloudy with a high near 54, a 40% chance of showers. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 41 degrees and a 40% chance of showers. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 28 degrees. Tuesday, snow showers with a high near 42 and an 80% chance of precipitation. New snow accumulation of 1 to 2 inches. Tuesday night has a 50% chance of snow showers with the possibility of thunder. It'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 26 degrees. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 50 degrees. A 40% chance of showers mainly after midnight. Tuesday, partly sunny with a high near 66, a 20% chance of showers. Tuesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 49 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. May has arrived, which means we're that much closer to fire season. Last week, residents of the North Bloomfield Road area met to learn about prescribed fire. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza has that story up ahead. The best time to do burning on the ground is in the early spring or late fall uh, after the first rains. That's Ron Gray, Nevada City resident and prescribed fire advocate and practitioner. Despite one of the largest snowpack years on record in California, wildfire remains a concern for 2023. Though flowers seem to be everywhere at the moment, much of the greenery that we're seeing now could likely be brown and dangerously dry by midsummer. As distressing as that is, there are locals who are doing something about it. We wanted to, first of all, uh, invite neighbors to come and take a look at what prescribed fire actually looks like on the ground. And we're talking about low-intensity prescribed fire, which is what we call is, is low, slow, and readily controlled. So flame lengths no more than two feet high. We, we call it a backing fire, which means we light it in a, in a straight line going down slope to minimize the flame height instead of upslope where you get a higher flame height. And then also with no wind to very low wind, under five miles per hour, 
Uh, we want to do it with a relative humidity above 25% and in a temperature range, ideally in the 60 to 65 degree range, no more than 80 degrees. On Saturday, April 29th, neighbors in the North Bloomfield Road area gathered at a 10-acre residential property above Edwards Crossing to learn more about using controlled burning to reduce the threat of wildfire. The gathering was part of Placer and Nevada County Resource Conservation District's initiatives to educate and support small landowners on the safe use of prescribed fire. The purpose of this event was twofold, really, to first uh, inform neighbors about what prescribed fire looks like, uh, tell them what it is, what the purpose of it is, get them to maybe uh, maybe allay some of their fears about prescribed fire, smoke, etc. Explain to neighbors why putting fire back on the ground is a good thing. It's healthy for the forest. It's an easy, efficient way to get rid of, of debris. And uh, it also helps increase your defensible space and mitigate the threat of severe wildfires. Because one thing we've learned is that if you remove the, the fuels or litter on the ground, if you have a wind-driven canopy fire, they tend not to sustain themselves as readily if they're not getting heat from fuel burning on the ground. The meeting brought together representatives from multiple agencies. In addition to having educators from the Nevada County Resource Conservation District and the Placer County Resource Conservation District, we had representatives of the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District and CAL FIRE. Cal Fire our new CAL FIRE Battalion Chief Sean Ryan was out uh, and uh, Dwayne Strasser from the Air Quality Management District was here. And they were both here to show their support and also explain to landowners, um, you know, what their agencies expect in terms of, of doing fire on the ground safely in accordance with the law, uh, explain, you know, what the proper permit procedures were, and uh, basically just here to show their support and, uh, and give their advice and tips on, on burning safely and maintaining good air quality. Ron says there's more trainings on the way. There's nothing scheduled right now, but there will be. We're going to have additional educational opportunities through the resource conservation districts. Uh, Neighbors can sign up for what we call prescribed fire 101 workshops. And those are four or five hour classroom meetings where you learn about the basics of prescribed fire. And then they're coupled with field days where we actually go out and do hands-on using tools, uh, uh, putting fire on the ground so that, that folks can apply what they learn in the classroom. And those will be coming up. In the meantime, people can contact the Nevada County Resource Conservation District for more information. For information on permits, they should contact the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District. For KVMR, I'm Claudio Mendoza. That's our newscast for Monday, May 1st. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Best Friends Animal Clinic on Highway 174, Grass Valley, where doctors Melanie Curtis and Susan Klopfer and staff provide comprehensive veterinary care for family dogs and cats. Information at bestfriends-animalclinic.com. And Weiss Landscaping. With over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture, design, and installation, 
Weiss landscaping crews are experienced and provide accountability on craftsmanship, installation, and irrigation projects. Go WeissLandscaping.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Happy May Day. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.